Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me for another week as we make our way through the Catechism. As we did last week, we'll discuss some commentary of the Catechism in the first half of the episode, and then in the second half of the episode, I'll read today's selection, which is Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 185 through 213. So stick with me as we begin part one, section two of the Catechism, and go through the Apostles' Creed with lots of references to the Nicene Creed, line by line. What we'll talk about today on the first half of the episode is our belief in one God. So while God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is one, and He is a personal and loving God. So rather than being this nebulous, far-removed, higher power, God is intimately concerned about and connected to our day-to-day lives. And he invites us to be in that personal relationship with him. We'll also talk a little bit about how uh, when we let him take the reins, life can often be much more exciting, not without its sufferings and trials, um, but he often brings us to unexpected places and on, on wonderful adventures that we could not have imagined for ourselves. So as we begin, I'd like to point out Uh, kind of a side note in paragraphs 192 through 193, which again we'll cover in the second half of the episode, um, rattles off a number of other creeds that have been articulated throughout church history. And paragraph 193 says, none of the creeds from the different stages in the church's life can be considered superseded or irrelevant. They help us today to attain and deepen the faith of all times by means of the different summaries made of it. So these different creeds, some of which are listed above in paragraph 192, the Athanasian Creed, um, the professions of faith that came from certain councils, Toledo, Lateran, Lyon, Trent, these are not extinct creeds, creeds no longer needed or, you know, somehow wrong hundreds of years later. But just like I mentioned in the very first episode of this podcast, we have a number of different catechisms that have been created to suit local communities, particular groups, maybe certain nations, um, where the truth is the same, but it's articulated in a way that's helpful to a certain group. So if you hear of other creeds uh, that have been articulated throughout church history, those are great. Uh, the catechism simply focuses on two. So paragraph 193 ends by saying, among all the creeds, two occupy a special place in the church's life, and that's the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So if we jump back up to paragraph 190, it says, the creed is divided into three parts. The first part speaks of the first divine person and the wonderful work of creation, The next speaks of the second divine person and the mystery of his redemption of men. The final part speaks of the third divine person, the origin and source of our sanctification. These are the three chapters of our baptismal seal. So I find that often um, for myself and from listening to different people, we associate the Father, the first person of the Trinity, with creation. We often associate the second person of the Trinity 
the Son, Jesus Christ, with redemption. So through his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, we are redeemed, we are saved. And then we often associate the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, with sanctification or being made holy. So we think of Pentecost, we think of confirmation. He comes to us, fills us with his gifts to go out and be the men and women whom God created us to be, to live lives set apart. It's important to note um, that all three persons of the Trinity are present and active in each dimension of creation, redemption, and sanctification. So it's not like the Son and the Holy Spirit sat out the creation round, or Jesus didn't say to the Father and the Holy Spirit, you know what, I'll take one for the team. Father, you worked really hard on creation. You deserve a break. And Holy Spirit, you've got Pentecost and quite a few millennia of making people holy coming up. So why don't you just rest up for that while I take care of this? And it's not like the Holy Spirit was like, no fair, you each got leading roles and I haven't gotten a turn yet. So I call Pentecost. Uh, While the Trinity is three distinct persons, God is one. So we believe in one God. God is indivisible. Also, the three persons of the Trinity are equally God. So they're distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. They are distinct, but they are equal. So all three are responsible for creation. All three have redeemed us, and all three continue to sanctify us or to make us holy. We can take a quick look at the first account of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Um, to get a little sense of how the three persons, one God, uh, are all present in the creation, creation story. So Genesis chapter 1 reads, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss and a mighty wind sweeping over the waters, then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. We often think of the one speaking as God the Father. He simply speaks and things happen. Light appears, land and seas separate. The earth brings forth vegetation. He brings into being a variety of animals and eventually man and woman. What's easy to overlook is the actual word that he's speaking. It's that word that has power and makes the things happen. So pause for a moment and think, where else do we see the word operating in Scripture? In lots of places. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is often referred to throughout the Bible as the Word of God. So think back to Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 65, which says, Christ, the Son of God, made man, is the Father's one perfect and unsurpassable Word. In Him He has said everything. The two persons of the Trinity, the Father who speaks the Word and the Son who is the Word of God, are inseparable. So they are one God, but they are also distinct persons, and we can see how they are both present at creation. We can also see the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, present and active in creation. So scripture says, the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss, and a mighty wind sweeping over the waters. Wind and breath and cloud and other images are used to represent the Holy Spirit throughout uh, the scriptures. So think of the Acts of the Apostles, 
chapter 2, verse 2, okay, which is the, the passage about Pentecost. So the scriptures say, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. If we go back to the Old Testament, to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 37, verses 9 and following, it reads, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. Going back to the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 8, we read, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then a little later, and finally, in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 22, we read, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So just like the Father is present at creation, speaking the powerful words, and the Son is that powerful word being spoken, the Holy Spirit is represented by the mighty wind sweeping over the waters, unleashing his creative power and bringing something out of nothing. These three persons of the Trinity are distinct, yet they are one. They are inseparable, and all are responsible for creation. If you look back in the Catechism to where the two creeds are placed side by side between paragraphs 184 and 185, you'll see that the Nicene Creed says that Jesus is one in being with the Father, and through him all things are made. Moving down to the section on the Holy Spirit, the Nicene Creed notes that he is the Lord, the giver of life. So all are responsible for creation. We spoke uh, last week of a widely popular heresy of the early church known as Arianism, and we can briefly touch on another heresy that popped up even earlier known as Marcionism. I referenced in an earlier episode as part of a teaser for an upcoming uh, episode that many talk about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. So many people associate the Old Testament God with the destruction of cities with bloodshed and justice, and with a pretty tough and scary image of God, while they associate the New Testament God with kind of like a long-haired hippie who sits on the hillside among daisies and sunflowers and simply preaches love and forgiveness and quote-unquote turning the other cheek. Besides overlooking the extremely loving and compassionate revelatory moments of the God of the Old Testament, such as when he tells the prophet Hosea, that he loves his chosen people like a faithful husband loves his adulterous wife, no matter how many times the unfaithful Israel turns to idols and tries to find refuge in other gods, Yahweh remains steadfast in his love of her, forgiving her and taking her back again and again and again. And besides overlooking the seemingly harsh moments of the God of the New Testament, such as when Jesus flips over the money changers' tables in the temple And when he calls the Pharisees things like, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every kind of filth. (laughs) Besides overlooking these moments in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's easy to forget that the persons of the Trinity can't be separated. And God doesn't change between the time of Moses and the time of St. Peter. As Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, God is the same yesterday, 
today, and forever. And as Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph one, has said from the very beginning, he is quote-unquote infinitely perfect and blessed in himself. So God doesn't change. Okay, he's not moody and surly in Act 1 of the Old Testament and then gets his stuff together by Act 2 of the New Testament. And thank God for that because I can sure be surly and moody and I need to get my act together. And uh, I can look to the one who has it all together and has always had it together. And he can give me the grace to live a better Act 2 and Act 3. So this idea of the Old Testament God being mean and the New Testament God being nice, uh, has kind of reared its heretical head throughout church history, starting as early as the second and third centuries with a man by the name of Marcion. So he preached uh, the benevolent God of the gospel who sent Jesus Christ into the world as the Savior was the true supreme being. And he preached that he was different from and opposed to the creator God of the Old Testament. So Around the time of Marcion, the canon of scripture, or the 46 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, were already kind of in motion to be listed as the inspired books of the Bible. Well, he rejected all 46 books of the Old Testament, and then a good chunk of the New Testament, and he just accepted a shortened version of Luke's gospel. So he removed parts that portrayed Jesus as mean or or vengeful, and he included 10 letters of St. Paul, whom he believed to be the only true apostle of Jesus Christ. The writer of Ecclesiastes, one of the old uh, books of the Old Testament, writes, what has been, that will be. What has been done, that will be done. Nothing is new under the sun. So it's an Old Testament way of saying like, hmm, kind of we've seen it all and We'll continue to see it all, and there's nothing new under the sun. So the, these heresies keep popping up throughout church history, and by the grace of God, the church has continued to hand on divine revelation for 2,000 years, simply putting more words and clear explana- explanations to what God has entrusted to her. So uh, this makes me think of my, my very first year of teaching. It happened to be the year that Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, came out. And if you're not familiar with the Da Vinci Code or Dan Brown's novels, um, he suggests that there are these these secret gospels or secret books of the Bible that the church is hiding from you. And in these books, we learn that Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene, and he established this dynasty, I believe, throughout France um, that still you know exists today. So the blood of Jesus Christ runs through his you know many many generations later. And a number of my students, it was very popular, a number of my students read it, and then shortly after the book came out, a movie came out featuring Tom Hanks. Um, And it was kind of billed as like, ooh, like the church is holding out on you, and like look at this new revelation. When in reality, this is a belief that was around uh, since the second century. So another heresy known as Gnosticism, which comes from the root word gnosis, meaning knowledge, as this belief that there's, there's kind of secret knowledge about God entrusted to certain people, and only they get the real truth. And in this case, part of the real truth is that Jesus was, in fact, married to Mary Magdalene and you know had many children whose line continues to this day. So I point that out to say that um, the church has kind of seen it all, and by the grace of God, 
has stood fast, really by the grace of God, has stood fast in upholding the truth entrusted to her by Jesus Christ, and she hands that on faithfully um, despite these, these errors that keep coming up throughout history. So this God who is three persons in one God, who is responsible for our creation, our redemption, and our salvation, is a real and distinct being who lovingly reveals himself to us. So rather than being this kind of nebulous entity, a higher power of which we have some vague notion, he is a reality who exists outside of us in our imaginations, whom we don't create and manipulate, but who reveals himself to us and calls us into relationship with him. And once again, thank God for that. Can you imagine if it was all up to us? Like if we kind of dictated the terms and and we had to come up with who God was and what he was like and how he operated. Uh, the good news is God is who he is and who he, who he is is a very loving, giving God who again invites us into relationship with him. We'll read in the second half of the episode today from paragraph 203, God revealed himself to his people Israel by making his name known to them. A name expresses a person's essence and identity and the meaning of this person's life. God has a name. He is not an anonymous force. To disclose one's name is to make oneself known to others. In a way, it is to hand oneself over by becoming accessible, capable of being known more intimately and addressed personally. The Catechism goes on to say that the revelation that proved to be the fundamental one for both the Old and New Covenants was the revelation of the divine name to Moses in the Theophany, which that's a word simply meaning a visible manifestation to humankind of God. So he revealed his name to Moses in the theophany of the burning bush. Moses asks him, when I return to the people of Israel and say that the God of your fathers has sent me to you, whom should I say sent me? AKA, what's your name? God responds in Exodus chapter three, verse 14 by saying, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The catechism says in paragraph 206, in revealing his mysterious name, Yahweh, or the, the Hebrew letters that translate to Y-H-W-H, I am who he is, I am who am, or I am who I am, God says who he is and by what name he is to be called. This divine name is mysterious just as God is mystery. It is at once a name revealed and something like the refusal of a name, and hence it better expresses God as what he is, infinitely above everything that we can understand or say. He is the hidden God. His name is ineffable, and he is the God who makes himself close to men. So it's that both and notion again, okay, one of my favorite themes. God is above and beyond us, yet he tells us his name and in doing that, draws close to us, makes himself accessible to us, and able to enter into relationship with him. You might have heard this term, the, the tetragrammaton. So tetra means four, grammaton means letters, and those four letters refer to Y, H, W, H, um, or the four Hebrew letters when read from right to left um, express I am who am. 
So originally Hebrew text only contained consonants, hence Y-H-W-H. But centuries after the Old Testament was written, scribes inserted vowels to make sure words were pronounced correctly. Okay, so that's where we get the name Yahweh. So in between Y-H-W-H, an A and an E are inserted to help us pronounce Yahweh. So Yahweh is the closest translation of the tetragrammaton, those four letters that express this, this sentiment, this phrase, this name, I am who am. So again, God is infinitely above everything that we can understand or say, and yet he is the God who makes himself close to men. So our little finite Sarah the fish brains cannot possibly comprehend all that the infinite God is, and yet the infinite God jumps in the fishbowl with us and shows us who he is, how much he loves us, and what a beautiful plan he has for each and every one of us and for humanity as a whole. This is very different um, from an understanding of God as kind of a higher power, this removed being um, who, again, kind of commands from on high, has some teachings for us, but is not intimately involved in our day-to-day lives and does not uh, necessarily demand things from us. So in the early 2000s, there was a a book that came out that then promoted uh, this idea that I think expresses um, what's often expresses a, a common way of looking at God, and that's um, the term moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, so this term moralistic therapeutic deism was first introduced in 2005. Again, in this book, the book was called Soul Searching: The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. It was put out by sociologist Christian Smith. Uh, with another author, Melinda Lundquist-Denton, and they wrote it after they had interviewed over 3,000 teens, asking about their understanding of God, their practices in regards to God, um, and how they navigated life with or without God. So what emerged from this study was not a new religion or theology as such, but a set of commonly held uh, spiritual beliefs, Those beliefs are as follows. Number one, many believe in a a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches, watches over human life on earth. Secondly, many believe that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Thirdly, many believe the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, many believe God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then fifth and lastly, uh, many believe that good people go to heaven when they die. So Smith and Denton coined this term, moralistic therapeutic deism, to encapsulate and discuss kind of the, the series of beliefs Um, that many young people, and now here we are, you know, almost 20 years later, uh, many adults believe, and uh, this is how many view God. So that first term, moralistic, gets at uh, a moralistic approach to life, being a good moral person. Uh, Many believe that it's, it's central to living a good, happy life. So you have to 
do and not do certain things to live a good, happy life. That second term, therapeutic, uh, gets at this uh, belief that um, in approaching God this way or in believing God to be kind of this, this certain distant being who's somewhat involved in my life, it provides uh, feel-good benefits, um, yet it rejects notions of sin and repentance, of saying one's prayers, of keeping holy the Sabbath, of being obedient uh, to laws, especially ones that are inconvenient and or burdensome. And then that last term, deism, refers to the remoteness of God. So recall the analogy of the clockmaker who creates and winds up the clock and then sets it on the shelf to tick. Um, Smith writes that this notion is slightly revised in that God is selectively available for taking care of my needs. So it views God as something like a, a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, uh, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. So in this conception of God, we mold him into our image and likeness. Okay, we're in control. We phone a friend when we're out of our depth and need help, and then we tell him to shush when we don't need his help anymore. And we don't want any guilt-inducing reminders about our sinfulness or invitations, uh, even worse, commands, to do this or not do that, to obey this or sacrifice that, or yikes, suffer. No one, myself included, wants to be told and then reminded again and again that he or she is a sinner and is in need of a savior. But if that's the reality, if I'm a finite creature who doesn't know everything and who's selfish and prideful and envious and prone to anger, well then what a relief, what a gift to be able to turn to someone who's infinite, who knows all, who loves me, and who suffered and died to save me from my sin, from myself and provides lots of manuals that teach me, show me, how to use my printer, how to live my life well so as to achieve the goal of my humanity, happiness. Well, sign me up. I'll take door number two, Yahweh. And once we get past that comfy approach to life where I'm in control, actually where I think I'm in control, and I surrender to the infinite God who loves me and who has a beautiful plan for my life, one that, yes, still involves suffering, because I need to be purified of some selfishness and envy and anger, I step out into a much wider and more wonderful space and find that life with God is much more exciting, more fulfilling, and more edifying. So if we view God through this moralistic, therapeutic, deism uh, understanding or approach, uh, I I'm in control, okay? I know there's like certain rules I need to obey, certain things I should do, not do. If I live a generally good life, I'm a pretty good person. Um, you know, I, I pray when I need some things, but then I don't let God get too involved in my day-to-day. That's -day. Um, kind of like a, a, a comfy approach uh, where I'm, you know, again, I'm still in control. I call the shots. I kind of navigate life as I want. Um, that's That's fine, but what I propose is that we're missing out on not only the truth, the reality that is God, we're also missing out on a much more beautiful, adventurous life. Bishop Robert Barron, whom I've mentioned in another episode, one of the auxiliary bishops of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and the face of the Word on Fire Ministries, 
he talks about the ego drama versus the theodrama. So he says in the ego drama, I write the play, I direct the play, I produce the play, and of course, I star in the play. So it's nice to be center stage, to be applauded, to have roses thrown at my feet. But ultimately, it's a little boring. Okay, it's kind of small and limited because I'm the one driving it. In the theodrama, however, it's God who writes the play, directs the play, produces the play. And while I have a role, I might be a star of the show sometimes, I might not. But how much more awesome and exciting and creative and unexpected it is. So think of Moses, whom we just just, uh, mentioned. He goes from being a shepherd in Egypt to the leader of the chosen people, okay, bringing them to the promised land. He doesn't actually get to enter the promised land, but it still seems to work out well for him. So fast forward to the New Testament when Jesus is being transfigured on top of the mountain. It's Elijah and Moses that appear on his left and right next to the transfigured Jesus. Think of St. Paul in the New Testament. This scholarly Jew literally knocked off his horse after persecuting Christians. He then travels the world proclaiming Christ and ends up writing much of the New Testament. I think even of my precious mom, who as a little girl wanted to be a travel agent. Okay, that was her her dream in life. Um, She loved traveling. She loved being with people. And she really wanted to be a travel agent. Well, in her young adult life, she experiences this beautiful deepening uh, in her conversion, deepening in her walk with the Lord when she travels to Medjugorje, this obscure little town in Bosnia and Herzegovina, a modern-day apparition site. And she then ended up leading hundreds, maybe even thousands of people, pilgrims, fellow travelers, to this obscure little town via fabulous cities like Paris and Rome, over the course of almost three decades. So she placed her life in the hands of the infinite God, and not only were her loves and dreams not obliterated, but they were elevated and perfected and made even more exciting and wonderful as she forwent her little ego drama and entered into the great theodrama, bringing so many more people onto the stage with her, bringing hundreds of people literally along for the ride on her journey to God. So we can persevere in trying to live in a safe space, much like the one created by those who ascribe to moralistic, therapeutic deism, or we can surrender to a real and personal God, one whom we don't create and control, but one who invites us onto the world stage, where a great drama has been unfolding throughout time and space, and in which Yahweh has a beautiful and exciting role for each of us to play. And we don't even have to audition. Womp, womp. The hook, the hook. Get this girl off the stage. Okay, we don't have to audition because God has already lovingly created us and has an incredible story for each of us. So it's up to us to look to him for our cues. (laughs) Thought I'd end on that cheesy note. All right, so next week we'll read paragraphs 214 through 248. And as I promised at the end of last week's episode, We'll actually discuss next week this term, the Septuagint, something that's featured in today's reading, but we'll talk about it next week. We'll discuss the term, what it means, and why it's helpful to know. 
We will also talk about God who is truth, beauty, and goodness. These are referred to as the three transcendentals. And speaking of transcending, we'll also talk about how God transcends or how he's above and beyond gender. He is neither male nor female, yet he creates us to be male and female. So thanks for joining me this week. Please stay tuned for next week's episode. And after we take a brief break right now, we will then read paragraphs 185 through 213. So we'll go to part one and start section two of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Thanks so much. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. Today we read paragraphs 185 through 213 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Section 2, The Profession of the Christian Faith, The Creeds. Whoever says, I believe, says, I pledge myself to what we believe. Communion in faith needs a common language of faith, normative for all and uniting all in the same confession of faith. From the beginning, the apostolic church expressed and handed on her faith in brief formulae for all. But already, early on, the Church also wanted to gather the essential elements of its faith into organic and articulated summaries, intended especially for candidates for baptism. This synthesis of faith was not made to accord with human opinions, but rather what was of the greatest importance was gathered from all the scriptures to present the one teaching of the faith in its entirety. And just as the mustard seed contains a great number of branches and a tiny grain, so too the summary of faith encompassed in a few words the whole knowledge of the true religion contained in the Old and New Testaments. Such syntheses are called professions of faith since they summarize the faith that Christians profess. They are called creeds on account of what is usually their first word in Latin, credo, I believe. They are also called symbols of faith. The Greek word symbolon meant half of a broken object, for example, a seal presented as a token of recognition. The broken parts were placed together to verify the bearer's identity. The symbol of faith, then, is a sign of recognition and communion between the believers. Symbolon also means a gathering, collection, or summary. A symbol of faith is a summary of the principal truths of the faith and therefore serves as the first and fundamental point of reference for catechesis. The first profession of faith is made during baptism. The symbol of faith is first and foremost the baptismal creed. Since baptism is given in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the truths of faith professed during baptism are articulated in terms of their reference to the three persons of the Holy Trinity. And so the creed is divided into three parts. The first part speaks of the first divine person and the wonderful work of creation. The next speaks of the second divine person and the mystery of his redemption of men. The final part speaks of the third divine person, the origin and source of our sanctification. These are the three chapters of our baptismal seal. These three parts are distinct, although connected with one another. According to a comparison often used by the fathers, we call them articles. Indeed, just as in our bodily members there are certain articulations which distinguish and separate them, so too in this profession of faith, the name articles has justly and rightly been given to the truths we must believe particularly and distinctly. In accordance with an ancient tradition already attested to by St. Ambrose, 
It is also customary to reckon the articles of the creed as twelve, thus symbolizing the fullness of the apostolic faith by the number of the apostles. Through the centuries, many professions or symbols of faith have been articulated in response to the needs of the different eras. The creeds of the different apostolic and ancient churches, for example, the Quicumque, also called the Athanasian Creed, the professions of faith of certain councils, such as Toledo, Lateran, Lyon, Trent, or the symbols of certain popes, for example, the Fides Damasi, or the Credo of the People of God, of Paul VI. None of the creeds from the different stages in the Church's life can be considered superseded or irrelevant. They help us today to attain and deepen the faith of all times by means of the different summaries made of it. Among all the creeds, two occupy a special place in the Church's life. The Apostles' Creed is so called because it is rightly considered to be a faithful summary of the Apostles' faith. It is the ancient baptismal symbol of the Church of Rome. Its great authority arises from this fact. It is the Creed of the Roman Church, the See of Peter, the first of the Apostles, to which he brought the common faith. The Niceno-Constantinopolitan or Nicene Creed draws its great authority from the fact that it stems from the first two ecumenical councils, in 325 and 381. It remains common to all the great churches of both East and West to this day. Our presentation of the faith will follow the Apostles' Creed, which constitutes, as it were, the oldest Roman catechism. The presentation will be completed, however, by constant references to the Nicene Creed, which is often more explicit and more detailed. As on the day of our baptism, when our whole life was entrusted to the standard of teaching, Let us embrace the creed of our life-giving faith. To say the credo with faith is to enter into communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also with the whole church, which transmits the faith to us and in whose midst we believe. This creed is the spiritual seal, our heart's meditation, and an ever-present guardian. It is unquestionably the treasure of our soul. Chapter 1. I believe in God the Father. Our profession of faith begins with God, for God is the first and the last, the beginning and the end of everything. The credo begins with God the Father, for the Father is the first divine person of the Most Holy Trinity. Our creed begins with the creation of heaven and earth, for creation is the beginning and the foundation of all God's works. Article 1. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Paragraph 1. I believe in God. I believe in God. This first affirmation of the Apostles' Creed is also the most fundamental. The whole creed speaks of God, and when it also speaks of man and of the world, it does so in relation to God. The other articles of the creed all depend on the first, just as the remaining commandments make the first explicit. The other articles help us to know God better as he revealed himself progressively to men. The faithful first profess their belief in God. I believe in one God. These are the words with which the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed begins. The confession of God's oneness, which has its roots in the divine revelation of the Old Covenant, is inseparable from the profession of God's existence and is equally fundamental. God is unique. There is only one God. The Christian faith confesses that God is one in nature, substance, and essence. To Israel, his chosen, God revealed himself as the only one. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
Through the prophets, God calls Israel and all nations to turn to him, the one and only God. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. Jesus himself affirms that God is the one Lord whom you must love with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. At the same time, Jesus gives us to understand that he himself is the Lord. To confess that Jesus is Lord is distinctive of Christian faith. This is not contrary to belief in the one God, nor does believing in the Holy Spirit as Lord and giver of life introduce any division into the one God. We firmly believe and confess without reservation that there is only one true God, eternal, infinite, and unchangeable, incomprehensible, almighty, and ineffable, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons indeed, but one essence, substance, or nature entirely simple. God reveals his name. God revealed himself to his people Israel by making his name known to them. A name expresses a person's essence and identity and the meaning of this person's life. God has a name. He is not an anonymous force. To disclose one's name is to make oneself known to others. In a way, it is to hand oneself over by becoming accessible, capable of being known more intimately and addressed personally. God revealed himself progressively and under different names to his people. But the revelation that proved to be the fundamental one for both the Old and the New Covenants was the revelation of the divine name to Moses in the theophany of the burning bush, on the threshold of the Exodus and of the covenant on Sinai. The Living God God calls Moses from the midst of a bush that burns without being consumed. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is the God of the fathers, the one who had called and guided the patriarchs in their wanderings. He is the faithful and compassionate God who remembers them and his promises. He comes to free their descendants from slavery. He is the God who, from beyond space and time, can do this and wills to do it. The God who will put his almighty power to work for this plan. I am who I am. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In revealing his mysterious name, Yahweh, I am he who is, I am who am, or I am who I am, God says who he is and by what name he is to be called. This divine name is mysterious just as God is mystery. It is at once a name revealed and something like the refusal of a name, and hence it better expresses God as what he is infinitely above everything that we can understand or say. He is the hidden God. His name is ineffable, and he is the God who makes himself close to men. By revealing his name, God at the same time reveals his faithfulness, which is from everlasting to everlasting, valid for the past, I am the God of your fathers, as for the future, I will be with you. God, who reveals his name as I am, reveals himself as the God who is always there, present to his people in order to save them. Faced with God's fascinating and mysterious presence, man discovers his own insignificance. Before the burning bush, Moses takes off his sandals and veils his face in the presence of God's holiness. Before the glory of the thrice holy God, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
Before the divine signs wrought by Jesus, Peter exclaims, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But because God is holy, he can forgive the man who realizes that he is a sinner before him. I will not execute my fierce anger, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. The Apostle John says likewise, We shall reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Out of respect for the holiness of God, the people of Israel do not pronounce his name. In the reading of sacred scripture, the revealed name, Yahweh, is replaced by the divine title, Lord. In Hebrew, Adonai, in Greek, Kyrios. It is under this title that the divinity of Jesus will be acclaimed. Jesus is Lord. A God merciful and gracious. After Israel's sin, when the people had turned away from God to worship the golden calf, God hears Moses' prayer of intercession and agrees to walk in the midst of an unfaithful people, thus demonstrating his love. When Moses asks to see his glory, God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. Then the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses then confesses that the Lord is a forgiving God. The divine name, I am, or he is, expresses God's faithfulness. Despite the faithlessness of men's sin and the punishment it deserves, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. By going so far as to give up his own son for us, God reveals that he is rich in mercy. By giving his life to free us from sin, Jesus reveals that he himself bears the divine name. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am. God alone is. Over the centuries, Israel's faith was able to manifest and deepen realization of the riches contained in the revelation of the divine name. God is unique. There are no other gods beside him. He transcends the world and history. He made heaven and earth. They will perish, but you endure. They will all wear out like a garment, but you are the same, and your years have no end. In God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is he who is, from everlasting to everlasting, and as such, remains ever faithful to himself and to his promises. The revelation of the ineffable name, I am who am, contains then the truth that God alone is. The Greek Septuagint translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and following it, the church's tradition, understood the divine name in this sense. God is the fullness of being and of every perfection, without origin and without end. All creatures receive all that they are and have from him, but he alone is his very being, and he is of himself everything that he is. Thanks so much for listening this week. I look forward to seeing you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.